Welcome to the Chatter in the Box podcast, where your hosts, Liam Skiffington and Matt Indominico, discuss all things baseball. From breaking news to the latest free agent signings, they'll dive into today's game with some of the top minds from around the league. You can catch the latest episode of the Chatter in the Box podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or Amazon Music, or visit our website at www.chatterinthebox.com. All right, welcome back to episode four of Chatter in the Box. We are here today with Jacob Turner. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Yeah, guys. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Appreciate you taking the time, Jacob, stepping in the box. So, Jacob, you had a seven-year MLB career. You played for five teams. Can you tell me which team was your favorite to play for and why? Yeah, I mean, I'm from St. Louis, so I grew up a Cardinals fan. But my favorite organization was probably the Cubs. And really, it's just because the organization from top to bottom is really first class. You know, they treat the families really well. It's all the little things that a lot of times fans don't even see. They were very honest with the players, very upfront with like what the expectations were, where you were at in the depth chart, things like that. So it really allowed you, in my opinion, to go out there and, and perform. Awesome. So, Jacob, you were drafted. You came up through the system as a young kid. You were drafted out of high school. You were 18 years old when you got your signing bonus, right? I was. 18 years old, you just got $5.5 million. How did your life change? And what was that conversation like surrounding that signing bonus? Yeah, I mean, it it, cha- it changes everything and it changes nothing all at the same time. So obviously having that much money, it changes everything, right? Like you go from, I went from being a high school kid that had, you know, a couple hundred dollars in my bank account, I think, to having millions of dollars. It changes everything. And money take, can take a lot of stress off your life, the ability to like pay your bills. But I think on the flip side of it, it also kind of changes nothing from the standpoint of it didn't change who I was as a person. It didn't change like what I did the next day. I woke up with the same feeling the next day as I did the night before. So there was a lot of changes, but um, a lot of things stayed the same. So for me as an 18 year old, really what my biggest concern was, was like, how do I not blow this? So making sure that I get good people around me. And I, I didn't really go out and buy anything, anything too cool with it, to be honest with you. Jacob, did you, in your experience, did you see players get so caught up in like the signing bonus and the money and kind of like fizzle out? I think a lot of guys, you know, like as if you try to put yourself in their shoes, you know, you've been working for this dream of becoming a professional baseball player for generally like five to six years before that, where you're like, okay, I kind of have a chance to do this. I'm really going all in on this thing. And then you get to draft day and it's like this huge emotional pull. Like I become a professional baseball player. All my buddies are texting me like you're a professional athlete now. And it can feel like that's like the pinnacle, right? Like that, that you quote unquote made it. But what I think is really important to realize is like, it's just the start of it. You haven't actually done anything. You've just been drafted. You're going to go to the Meyer league. You know, this isn't the NFL where I'm going like straight into the starting lineup for the big league team the next day. So I do think there's an element of like understanding that. And, and I've certainly seen guys just onto the trap of thinking that like the draft was the end all be all. And I think that also kind of can seep into their personal lives and sometimes with their money too. And Jacob, you recently had a Twitter thread go viral about like 10 things that players don't know about the draft. What made you think of those 10 things? And can you get into them a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, what made me think of them is just honestly stuff that I just went through. I didn't, I don't 
view them as like that outside the box because to me it's like semi-normal you know i mean a couple of the things were the idea that like you have the red carpet for two days like when you're a baseball player and you get drafted um, even now the drafts on tv so like for two days you kind of feel like you're high and mighty you're getting interviewed by the big league reporters you go to the big league stadium you're on the jumbotron and then like two days later you're like at the spring training facility and you're just like another minor league guy and you realize like really quickly that like all of a sudden like I am not a big leaguer. And although I felt like that for 48 hours, mm-hmm. um, I have a long journey in front of me. I think just understanding some of the intricacies that go into professional baseball specifically, because it is so different than like the NBA and the NFL where like usually the minute you get drafted, you're going to be like on ESPN the next year playing in like some sort of bigger game. You know, in Major League mm-hmm. Baseball, you get drafted and like nobody really remembers you for like the next three to four years unless you're like a, a huge baseball guy that like loves prospects. And then you get to the big leagues and then it's like, oh, yeah, I remember we drafted this guy in the first round a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So, Jacob, you were a UNC commit before you were drafted. Did the signing bonus, was a signing bonus the be-all, end-all for you to say bye to that commitment and get right into the pros? Yeah, I mean, I come from a family that really values school and higher education. And for me, I was fully committed to going to school. I, I actually didn't think I was going to sign. And I think it ultimately ended up benefiting me. It gave me a lot of leverage in that situation. But, yeah, for me, it just came down to the commitment the Tigers were making in me at the time, you know, both financially and then also otherwise, just the idea that like, hey, I'm, I got picked ninth overall. They're going to put a lot of resources and development behind me and give me a lot of chances. So for me, it just felt like it was an opportunity that was too good to pass up. Do you feel that you got as a top prospect, you got special treatment compared to the lower level prospects? I mean, definitely. Like anybody that says otherwise is lying, right? Like if you're a first round pick, you have 10 lives. That's the way I describe it. Like if you're a second round pick, you might have three lives. If you're a fifth round pick, you might have one life. And if you're a 10th round pick, you're like competing to like earn a life. And like anybody that says otherwise is lying. Like as a first round pick, like you get the opportunity, right? Like they paid you all this money. They want to see you perform. Everybody that put time and energy and resources into picking you also wants to see you perform because like now they have skin in the game to make sure they're like, hey, we we went out on a limb and we signed this guy. You know, we could have taken anybody else. So they want to give you every opportunity to succeed. So you're Matt, you go. I was just going to say, you know, on draft day, uh, if you had told yourself you were going to have a seven year major league baseball career, would you have believed it at the time? That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that, Matt. That's a really good question. I think I always felt like I was going to play in the big leagues. I remember telling people like it was just a matter of time. I I didn't say that from like an arrogant standpoint. I just said that from the belief standpoint that like I think everybody that is coming into professional baseball has this inherent belief that they are good enough to play at that level. And if you don't have that belief, you have no chance of competing. So I always believed that I I was going to play in the big leagues when I got to that point, like a 17, 18 year old kid. But I don't know. I never really thought about like what the career would look like in terms of like how long I was going to play. And I I think the other thing, Matt, is like it's very hard as an 18 year old to understand how hard it is to not only get there, but to stay there. I can remember I had some mentors in high school, Todd Worrell, who pitched for the Cardinals for a long time, Andy Bennett, who pitched for the Cardinals and the Diamondbacks for a long time, and Mike Matheny. All three of these guys played for more than 10 years in the big leagues. And at the time, as like a 17, 18 year old kid, you don't quite understand like what that means. And now that like I've been through the entire process from draft day to being done with my career, I have so much respect for the guys that play like 10 years in the big leagues. Because it's one thing to get to the big leagues and it's an entirely different thing to stay there consistently. Yeah. You have a whole next level of appreciation for it, for sure. Fast forward, you know, you retired in 2019, right? And you played one year in the KBO? Correct. Correct. All right. So then, you know, post-career then, you started JL Strategic Wealth. 
You want to talk a little bit about that, what it is, why you started it, and what inspired you to do so? Yeah, you know, for me, signing as an 18-year-old for $5.5 million, there was a lot of blessings that came with that. There was also some anxiety that came with that, the idea that, like, hey, I had this huge opportunity in front of me financially. Like, I want to make sure I don't blow it. My parents really instilled in us, like, this idea that, like, you work for everything you get, and, you know, they aren't just going to be cutting me giant checks for doing something else. So during that process, like when I started building out like my financial team and people around me and understanding that like, oh, wow, like this baseball thing is really specific. Because if you think about most people's career trajectory, it's like go to school, graduate college, get a job, start earning more money. And you kind of like follow this little this gradual incline up until you're like 55 and you're like, okay, now I'm at peak earning years. I'm going to do that for the next 10 years. I'm going to retire. Versus baseball is like you're going like straight up. And then you're going straight back down. So you're usually earning like your entire lifetime of earnings in like a 10 year window. So for me, one, I always love personal finance. I always loved understanding like the way the world works. So how people made money, what they did with their money. And I probably knew five years before I got done, like I wanted to do something with personal finance. And when I got done, you know, being in the wealth management industry, which is what JL Strategic Wealth is, is a wealth management company that allows me to be in personal finance. It allows me to educate people. It also allows me to work in a specific niche and group of people that like, I feel like I can help the best. So the only folks that we work with are athletes and entrepreneurs. And generally they're folks that are hitting either the J curve in their business or they're having a sudden wealth event. They're having a big contract, they're exiting their business and they're making a lot of money. And I always view money as like an inherently personal thing. Like they, not only from the strategic part, the X's and O's of it, but also just from like the personal standpoint, you know, if you guys think about how each of you guys spend your money, it's going to be vastly different than how I spend my money. And a lot of that comes from what your experiences are, what's important to you, what you're trying to build. So really having a deep understanding of like what the client's going through is important for me. Jacob, so you mentioned building out your own personal financial team. What, uh, like, can you talk a little bit about what consists of like, who is on a financial team? their yep. roles and how those them. Yeah. So I'll talk about it from the perspective of who I think should be on their financial team. This was not who was on my financial team day one. I think for, okay. for athletes in particular, they really need to have somebody that's sitting at the center of their life. Generally that's the advisor where they're really helping to not only build out that team of people around you, but coordinating with all those pieces. So if you think about the advisors here and then the people that are helping to support, you know, that individual in their financial life are people like a CPA, people like an estate planning attorney, generally for an athlete, somebody like an agent that's off the field, and generally somebody on the insurance side, whether it's property and casualty, umbrella insurance, make sure they're protected, and potentially somebody on the life insurance side, and making sure that there's somebody sitting at the center of that team that's coordinating all those pieces together. Because one thing, as you start to develop more wealth, there's more complexity that comes into play, and you want to make sure that all those individuals are talking to each other. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that I see in the industry today. Jacob, what would you say in your experience, you've been at J JL Strategic Wealth now for um, almost like five years. What would you say in your experience is the biggest expense for these athletes and entrepreneurs that you guys are so accustomed to working with? Well, the biggest expense that they're going to ever have is taxes. So anything that we can do to help lower their lifetime tax bill is something that we certainly want to try to do. You know, outside of that, a lot of times the biggest expense that folks run into are fixed costs. So if you think about like the biggest fixed cost that generally everybody owns is a house. The house is not like a thing that you can just sell tomorrow. It's not like going to the grocery store and saying you just want to spend less money. You're just like, if I own this house, I'm going to pay the property taxes and the mortgage and all the expenses that come with keeping up the house. So for us, it's always making sure that players are very aware of like, what are the fixed costs in your life? And the way I describe it is like, what does it cost to be you? You know, if you like just look today, like, 
you know, how much money does it cost every single month to support the lifestyle that you're living today? Yeah, interesting. Um, I read on one of your excerpts about one of the eighth wonders of the world and it's compounding. Do you want to talk a little bit about what compounding is for those that are listening that might not really know and how that can be beneficial to long-term strategic wealth? Yeah, you know, I mean, compounding is just the idea of like, over the course of time, investments start to build on top of each other. And the way the easiest way to think about it is if you took two plus two plus two plus two plus two, and you get to eight or 10, however many twos I just said, versus two times two times two times two, you know, what do you get to there? And that's the difference between just like adding things up and then compounding over time. And one of the things that I always preach to the folks that we work with, our average client is around 30 years old. So they have a lot of time in front of them. They have what I call a really long runway to invest money. So we want to make sure that they're having, they're taking advantage of this really long runway because ultimately to become a really good investor, it's much less about like what you're earning in a given year. And it's much more about how long you can stay in the game. You know, if you think about like the greatest investors of like the last generation, everybody thinks generally of like Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Warren Buffett's like a famous investor. He's invested for like 75 years. But if you look at his returns, they're really good. But what he's done better than anybody else is just done it longer than everybody else. Right. So making sure that you're staying, you're doing everything in your power to continue to stay in the game is something that I think often gets overlooked. Um, interesting you said that because on top of that, I wanted to ask about um, something Robert Kiyosaki said. I'm sure you're familiar with Robert Kiyosaki. He said savers are losers. He said savers are losers in the sense that people that just stash away their money in a checking account or saving account will not necessarily find long-term wealth. Do you agree with that methodology in the sense that, you know, you're fighting against inflation when your dollar sits in a bank account and that, that concept? Yeah. You know, I mean, I know he has some strong opinions um, <laughs> on a lot on a lot of different topics. I also think he did, he's done a, a nice job educating a lot of people around investing. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, look, like nobody's ever gotten extremely wealthy by putting their money in a bank account or putting it under right. a mattress. So right. investing money, you know, is important. What I would say is like to inherently grow money, you have to be willing to take some level of risk. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what it comes down to is like doing the planning with, with a professional beforehand and making sure you understand like where I'm at today, where I'm going in the future. Because at the end of the day, the worst thing that can happen is like you, you invest in a way that you don't let yourself stay in the game, right? You have to be able to stay in the game. So you have to have enough cash on the sidelines to be able to support your lifestyle, whether that's coming in from the job you have or stashed away in a bank account to be able to let the investments on the other side allow you to stay in the game long enough. Jacob, so you ju- you said a little while ago that taxes are athletes' biggest expense. How, in your opinion, and even as a player in, during free agency, did income tax ever steer you in a certain direction? And have you had teammates in the past that you know firsthand um, that that particular state's income tax has steered them to go there? Yeah, certainly. I think there's two two big inflection points for for athletes. I'll speak I'll speak specifically for baseball players, but inflection point one is the draft. So you get drafted, you're going to get the signing bonus. Making sure one that it's structured as a signing bonus, and then when you make sure you do that, you can make sure that you are a resident of a state that maybe has no income tax. So obviously there's there's things to do that legally, but making sure that you're taking advantage of that. You know, I live in Missouri. Missouri has about a 6% state income tax. If I receive a million dollar bonus in Missouri, I'm paying $60,000 in taxes versus if I receive that same million dollar bonus and I'm a resident of Florida, I'm paying no state income tax. So that's inflection point one. I would say inflection point two is obviously free agency. Obviously there's 
the idea of like income tax in different states, but also the way that contracts are structured, um, depending on if guys are getting paid during the season or if guys are getting quote unquote bonus money outside the season matters. Because again, if, again, if it's bonus money, they might be able to get a tax in their home state that maybe isn't as much as they were playing for the Dodgers in California. That actually brings me right to my next question, Jacob, because I don't think a lot of people understand this. What does an MLB player's payment structure look like during the season and in the off season? Yeah, the majority of teams pay guys only during the season. So it's only the six months during the season. So most of the time, players are getting roughly 12 paychecks a year. As the season's kind of been extended a little bit more, it might be 13 paychecks. So again, it gives them it gives them this mass amount of money in a really short period of time because not only are they making it from a yearly perspective in a short period of time, but like in that given year, it's 12 to 13 paychecks. And they're not making generally any more money outside of that. So it, it can lead to some issues just around like the idea of like a false sense of reality. You know, if you're making a couple million bucks a year, every single paycheck you're getting is a few hundred grand. And all of a sudden it's like, well, I can just like go buy anything today with my paycheck because in two weeks, I'm going to get another one. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in terms of signing bonuses, because this, again, I feel like a lot of people don't understand this. When you, you signed for $5.5 million, did they hand you a check for $5.5 million and say, here you go, Jacob, good luck? So mine was structured in a way that I was getting paid out over the course of a couple of years. The general structure for signing bonuses as we sit today in 2023 is most guys get half the money up front. So within 30 days of signing, they get a check for, if they sign for $2 million, they're going to get a check for $1 million in 30 days. 12 months after that, the following year, they're going to get another check for a million dollars. Got it. That's interesting. I know you said your ideal client on average is about 30 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, with these guys that are getting drafted, I mean, at at an age that you once were 18, you were drafted $5.5 million. Are these more exciting clients? I'm throwing up air quotes to work with because, I mean, I know you said you like the guys with a larger runway ahead of them because they're getting these larger signing bonuses and um, they just have so much time ahead of them. I think, you know, for me, it ultimately comes down to fit, right? Like we serve in such an intimate way with the clients that we work with, I'm generally more aware of what's going on in their life than basically everybody other than their significant other. So it's truly making sure that like there's a fit there from the same point of like, I want to make sure that like when I pick up the phone, like I'm really excited to have this conversation and I want them to do the same on their side. So in terms of like the most exciting clients, most exciting clients are the folks that like, I just love to work with, whether they're an entrepreneur or an athlete, whether they're 18 or whether they're 35, it's truly just making sure that there's a fit there from the standpoint of like, do they want the advice? Do they need the advice? Can I help give the advice? Mm-hmm. Jacob, have you guys seen as like an industry as a whole, I suppose, with the recent NIL ruling, have you guys seen almost like an influx of younger players? We've dealt a little bit with NIL, um, not as much in baseball, just given the fact that baseball NIL money isn't near what some of the football NIL money is. A lot of the baseball NIL money is like lifestyle money. Like it might be a couple grand here or there. You know, most of the guys are, are paying taxes on that and they're spending that having fun at college. Versus, you know, there's guys at SEC schools that are making, you know, significant money that can truly be like life-changing money for them if they do it the right way. Got it. Jacob, and I know we were scheduled for a half hour. Do you have a couple more minutes to keep going with us? Yeah, go ahead. Appreciate it. Matt? Yeah. um, I I actually noticed a tweet that, um, I think it was maybe a month or so ago, that you tweeted that uh, dividend investing is overrated. Uh, Can you explain what dividend investing is and why is it overrated? Yeah, so the easiest way to explain dividend investing is we'll take Apple. They're a really great company. If you buy a share of Apple, no matter what happens with Apple stock, if it goes up or down in price, they're going to pay you a dividend. So all a dividend is is like because you own this this stock, they're going to say, hey, Jacob, you own the stock. We're going to pay you X amount of dollars every single quarter or whatever it's going to be in terms of here's our dividend that we're paying you. 
the reason why I say it's overrated is most people think that dividend investing creates like this safety net. Oh, well, I'm going to continue to get these dividends. What I would tell you is that like for the clients that we're working with, we want to make sure that they're investing in the most tax efficient manner. Ultimately, taxes are going to be their biggest lifetime expense. Folks that are earning a lot of money generally have enough money to invest outside of just retirement accounts. So retirement accounts are things like your 401k, your IRA. Once they max those out, they're investing what's called a taxable brokerage account. So it's a pay-as-you-go tax thing. So as money as you make money in there, you might have to pay tax on it. If you get paid a dividend, you have to pay taxes on that dividend when you get paid the dividend. As opposed to, let's say Berkshire Hathaway is a great example. Berkshire Hathaway pays no dividend. Instead, they say, hey, we think that we can be a better use. We can better use this capital than our investors. So we're going to keep all of it internally. Now, what happens there is like you don't pay any money because in taxes, because you're not getting a dividend, but it's ultimately being reinvested back into the company. So you're growing your price of share, but you're not paying any taxes along the way until you sell. Right, right. Very interesting. Sweet. Jacob, from, so you, like Matt said, you're working with around 30 year olds. I'm assuming some of the people you work with are retired MLB players. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. What can you tell us about MLB's pension plan and how, what that looks like compared to like a a corporate pension plan, or maybe they're extremely similar. I don't, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. So the MLB pension plan is like one of the greatest things in the world. Um, it's one of the most important things when guys negotiate the collective bargaining agreement. The MLB pension plan pays guys based on the quarter of service time they have in the big leagues. So a quarter of service time is 43 days. So every 43 days of major league service time that you are on the active roster for a major league baseball team, you get a piece of that pension. Okay. That pension maxes out at 10 years. So every year that you're on the pension right now, it's about 20,000, 25,000 a year. It maxes out in 2022. It maxed out at $230,000 a year for guys that have 10 years of service time. That's that quote unquote full retirement age. So in your, in your low sixties, you're getting that money, but that's how the pension plan works. And ultimately that's why service time for, for major league baseball players is so important. When guys get hurt, there's people that joke that like, if you're going to get hurt, you better get hurt in the big leagues because if you're on the big league DL, you're collecting service time. If you're on the mm-hmm. minor league DL, you're not collecting service time. Yep. Jacob, what can you, what do you know about like the insurance? Po- so like take Manny Machado, he just signed for $340 million. What can you tell us about like the insurance policy, insurance policies that surround contracts like that on the player side and on the team side? Yeah. So on the player side, it's like inherently personal. Generally, the insurance from the player side is coming before they sign that contract. So the example would be player XYZ is one year away from free agency and he turned down $100 million from the team. And he's like, I want to bet on myself. You know, he might take out an insurance policy that protects him from loss of value. So insurance company comes to the player. They look at the player. They say, hey, we value you at this much. This is how much it would cost to get this much in insurance. It might be $40 million of tax-free money if you don't sign for this much money the next year. Those policies generally cost a lot of money, but it does give the player the protection. It also allows the player additional leverage to go out and play that given free agent year. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of it, the team generally insures a lot of the large contracts. So like Manny Machado's contract with the Padres, the team might be insuring that contract and saying, if Manny were to get hurt in a given year, the insurance company is going to pay us the $30 million salary that we would have paid Manny. Got it. Let's do a quick little impromptu situation because I'm curious. Like, let's say we're going to actually almost put you in the seat, 18-year-old, $5.5 million signing bonus today. What kind of strategy would you lay out with them? Yes, if they're looking for long-term strategic wealth right? But they also at the same time want the ability to access their funds because there are a lot of instances where, you know, 401ks, a lot of that stuff's locked away till later in life. What if they want the liquidity aspect as well, being able to access their funds 
and not just lock up, you know, a lot of their money till later in life. What kind of advice or strategy would you come up with for someone in that situation like you once were? Yeah, as an 18 year old, having a large cash position is something that I recommend. The reason for it being one, Matt, as you mentioned, like there's going to be a lot of things that come up in their life. But if you think about any 18 year old baseball player, otherwise your life is going to change a lot from the time you're 18 to 25. It's going to change a lot from the time you're 25 to 30. It's going to change a lot by the time you're 30 to 40. So these guys are coming into a lot of money and they generally don't have any dependents. They're not married. There's no kids. You know, by the time they're 30, they might be married. They might have a couple of kids. They might have wanted to buy a house. So it's making sure that you're investing in a way that there is access to the money. Um, so one, having a cash position Two, making sure that like the way that the money is allocated. So how much do we have towards growth assets? How much do we have towards safety is allocated in a way that helps to support their lifestyle moving forward. But ultimately, it's our job as the advisor to better understand, okay, what are the goals for this individual? Now, fully understanding that as an 18-year-old, your first goal is like, I just want to buy a cool car, right? Mm -hmm. And like, we all know that like, by the time you're 23, 24, you're like, well, my goals might have changed a little bit. I might want to, you know, buy a house close to my spring training facility or something like that. Yeah, no, very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, Jacob, so my last question for you is, in your experience, why do these professional athletes go broke? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's actually a pretty simple answer. It's one, it's just keeping up with the Joneses. It's you are around this world that's like an alternate reality. Like when you pull into the parking lot and everybody's driving 80 to $150,000 cars, you think that that's what you need. Between that and then also the combination of like, again, you're making 12 paychecks in a year. These paychecks are generally, if you're making league minimum, these paychecks are, are tens of thousands of dollars every two weeks during the season. It creates this alternate sense of reality and you start to build out a lifestyle with that two things combined together that you just can't sustain. You build out a lifestyle of like, I have a couple houses and I, you know, they, they cost a lot of money to maintain. I have cars and I have people that I help support and all these fixed costs come into your life. And the last thing that an athlete wants to do is get done playing and say, okay, well, I have to sell the house, sell the cars and live a quote unquote, like normal lifestyle. The best way to do it is like, slowly build the lifestyle over time. And then when you get done playing, you just continue living the same lifestyle. Um, and you have the financial flexibility to do whatever you want when you're done. Awesome. Got it. So seven years in the big leagues, you had Scott Boris by your side, helping navigate your career. And now you're in JL Strategic Wealth. What impact, if any, did Scott have on your off-field ventures now? You know, I've, I've had some good conversations with Scott just about how he built the Boris Corporation. You know, I mean, people think about Scott as an agent, as a negotiator, and obviously he's one of the best negotiators, I would say, in the world. He's also an extremely sharp business mind. So the way that he has built, you know, his company is very intentional. So there's some things that I've certainly gleaned from that. And the idea of just like being around people that help to elevate you and what you're doing ultimately is a benefit for everybody. What do you think of the way he seemingly dominates the free agent market every single year? He's been in the game a long time. He's been in the game a long time. <laughs> Good answer. And I guess really my last piece for you, Jacob, is what could someone do today? Like, what is the first step? If they want to take the first action in getting their financial future secured right now, today, foot in the door, you know, what, what would you yep. suggest? Figure out how much it costs to be you. Figure out what you're spending. Most people underestimate what they're spending. Most people aren't tracking it. And you don't have to be down to the dollar. You don't have to be down to the cent. But if you can't articulate how much it costs to be you to maintain the lifestyle you're living, you really can't make investment decisions. You can't allocate money. You can't figure out what the big next goal is. You really can't do anything. You need to figure out like, okay, it costs X amount of dollars per month for Jacob Turner to be Jacob Turner. And I, I don't want to go down in lifestyle, so I need to understand what that looks like. That's great stuff. I appreciate that. Awesome.
Jacob, well, we appreciate you stepping in the box today and uh, having a conversation. We really cross paths between business and baseball. This is our first time doing this. So we really appreciate you taking the time and uh, we look forward to talking to you next time. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jacob.